When I think about positions in the church, one position that is often glorified today is that of the worship leader. And it's, it's been taken to some pretty strange places in this day as a pop star or a rock star or an, an idol that we look to. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be that way. But the, for the normal worship pastor or worship leader, it's a pretty rough gig. I can tell you there's no more controversial role, I dare say, even than the senior pastor, than the worship leader. People complaining about songs. What songs? This song, that song. I don't like that song. That song's too joyful. That song's too sad. I don't like that worship leader. I want this worship song. Why are we singing these old songs? We should be singing new songs. Why are we still singing the song? It was, we've been, it's, it was written six months ago. There's new worship songs. We can be, and on and on and on. I, I've led worship for over 20 years myself, and uh, I've had it pretty good, but uh, I've had many, many interactions like that with people. I mean literally I've I've stood up there leading worship and seeing, you know, old men crossing their arms, frowning and scowling because we're singing a new song and we're not singing in the old hymn. And uh, people leave churches because uh, they don't like the style of the music and all of this. And as a worship leader, you just you just kind of rack your brains. You hate squabbles over man-made songs. Squabbles over style, squabbles over theology. But so those are some of the woes of a worship pastor. But how about as a worshiper? Maybe you felt some of these things. I know I have. You, sometimes you're sitting there, you're singing songs. You're like, this is a song my, uh, my six-year-old. This is written for a six-year-old. We're singing nothing of substance. You're longing for singing songs of substance. Or you, you sing, you're, sometimes, I mean, there's songs written today that are actually somewhat heretical where they're blending Christ and the Father and the Spirit all together and we're singing modalism, one of the early church heresies. There's all, you're just longing for good music. And I remember even as a, as a young man, I, I had a longing to sing the Word of God. And tragically, I had never known that at one period in time, the church sang the biblical psalms. And that actually, for the majority of church history, the church sang the biblical psalms. And that was actually in, uh, especially during the time of the Reformation, where the, the German Lutheran Reformation went one way, where Luther kicked off um, uh, the, the idea of writing man-made hymns, and Calvin went the other way of moving towards singing just the words of God, uh, that that really initiated this departure from singing the word of God. And then all the more, particularly from the American context, in the 19th century when the revivals came about and they were looking for new music to create a new kind of worship service and that the biblical psalms largely began to be abandoned. One of the best things about the psalms and singing them is that when we sing them, we know we are singing God's word. You know, if we sing Psalm 3, which talks about God crushing and smiting the teeth of his enemies, you can't get mad at me for that. You can't get mad at some other. That's God's word. 
And actually, our, our notion of worship has been so corrupted in these days that when we sing God's word, we actually like, feel repulsed at times by singing it. We need our hearts to be shaped again by the word of God and by singing his word. So I've entitled the book of Psalms, God's Songbook. That's the, that's the name of the sermon, the title of the sermon today, Psalms, God's Songbook. And my aim today is to help you see Christ in the Psalms more clearly, see its relevance for today in the worship of God's people. My goal is that we would, as a church, uh, be an encouragement to restore biblical worship to the church today as well, and that you would go forth better equipped with a resource, God's word, for the spiritual battle and for the calling that he's called each one of you to live and to that battle that he's called you to wage in your particular context. Because the Psalms have been on the tongues of God's people, both in good days and bad, both in days of flourishing as well as on the battlefield and being at the martyr's stake. It was the Psalms of God that gave Christians courage and hope, even in the darkest hour. And so it's vital that we know how to sing the Psalms and how to see Christ and to see ourselves in them today. So the Psalms are God's infallible praise. The book of Psalms is for us infallible praise for the people of God. I'm going to argue today that the book of Psalms is God's songbook for every age. The book of Psalms is God's songbook for every age, not just at the Old Testament, but for today as well. In fact, it's more relevant now than ever. So the book of Psalms is God's songbook for every age. And I'm going to give you three reasons that I say that today. That will be the flow of the of the sermon today. Three reasons why the book of Psalms is God's songbook for every age. Firstly, it is infallible praise of the triune God. Infallible praise of the triune God. One of the wonderful things that I've indicated already about singing the Psalms is you're not worrying about if your theology is good or bad or if the theology of the song is good or bad. Now, our hermeneutics can be off sometimes, our interpretation, but the words are infallible because it's Scripture. As we confessed in our, in our response to the reading of God's Word from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out. By God. And note here, Paul is referring to the Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament's not written at this point. But he's writing to the New Testament church, which includes us today. All scripture is breathed out for God by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, in the Psalms, as well as all of Scripture, God has breathed out his own praises for us to sing back to him. They're infallible. They're without error. 
and God has breathed out these praises that we might be trained by them, that we might be made complete and equipped for every good work. And I'll touch on that at the end of the, the message again. When we sing the Psalms, we sing infallible praise of the triune God. Not only is it breathed out, which is why it's infallible, but it's also we sing to the triune God. That is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the things I think we tend to think, if you ask your average person today, or maybe even your average churchgoer, when they think of the Psalms, or when you think about God in the Old Testament, which person of the Trinity do we normally think about? We normally think about the Father, don't we? For most of us, our kind of our default assumption is that the Father is the one who's primarily operative in the Old Testament. And therefore, when we think of the Psalms, we think that the Psalms, they're primarily songs sung to the Father. Therefore, now that Christ has come, we need to sing new songs that are about Christ. But we commit a gross error when we do that. I'm, I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying singing songs about Christ with Christ's name in them is bad. But what I'm saying is we miss the main point and focus of the Psalms, which is Christ. So I want to take you to a few places in Scripture to, to show you this. Uh, Psalm 1, you might not be able to turn to all these, but I'll give you some references for your study. For example, of course, when we sing the Psalms, we sing about the Father. When we sing about Yahweh, remember, Yahweh is God's personal name. So in your Bible, if you ever see Lord in all caps, it means Yahweh. That's the, the personal name of God. Exodus 3.14, when God reveals his name to Moses, I am what I am. When we see that, usually in the Old Testament, I think, at least I did for much of my life, I just kind of think that's the Father. That's primarily orientated to the Father. And of course, that is true to a sense. Like Psalm 110.1, The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord. <clears throat> there, we know from, uh, from Hebrews and from the New Testament, because they're talking about the Father talking to the Son, that there, Yahweh is, retur- is uh, referring to the Father. So that, I think, is pretty obvious, so I'm not going <coughs> to excuse me, labor that point. We do sing of the Father as Yahweh, but we also sing of the Son as Yahweh. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, and I'd encourage you to just have a finger in that text, I want to show you a, a few places in, in Hebrews 1. The writer of Hebrews shows that when Yahweh is mentioned in the Old Testament, we are also singing to Christ. If you look in Hebrews 1, for example, the writer of Hebrews, which is a glorious book, by the way, is arguing for the supremacy of Christ in all things. He quotes Psalm 2, saying, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He shows us Christ there. And he quotes again, And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's actually a citation from Second Samuel 7 with the Davidic covenant. But then he goes back to the Psalms. Look at 
verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. So now the writer of Hebrews is saying, as he's quoting the Psalms, that this is addressed to the Son, your throne, O God. He's calling Christ God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of Christ. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So here we see that the writer of Hebrews, so we're getting inspired and fallible interpretation of the Psalms here. Okay, this is the Bible interpreting itself. And the Bible is showing us that the kingdom that is being sung about in the Psalms is Christ's kingdom. That the God who is being sung about is the triune God, Father, Son, as well as Holy Spirit. And if we go on in Hebrews 1.10, where the, where the writer is quoting from Psalm 102, and, is the, and if you read Psalm 102, it's attributed to Yahweh. Now the writer of Hebrews is attributing this to Christ, saying, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And again, here in Psalm 102, I think our natural state is thinking that this is being sung about the Father, but the writer of Hebrews, the Bible itself, is showing this is being sung about the Son. That when we sing to Yahweh, we are singing to Christ as well. So when we sing the Psalms and we sing to the Lord, we sing to the Father and we sing to the Son and we also sing to the Spirit. I think of Psalm 5111 where the psalmist says, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We sing to the Spirit as well. And more than that, it is the Holy Spirit that is the author of the Psalms that God has breathed out his praises for himself in the Spirit. Take you to example, uh, for example, in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. When God's people are praying for boldness. And they say in verse 25, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2, we sung that today because it's about Christ's kingdom. And here we see the early church gathered and they are now singing and praying the Psalms with a whole new revelation because Christ has been revealed. Because Christ has been revealed. And so we sing Psalm 1-2 about Christ 
And it was the Spirit who speaks and breathes out that praise for us to redound back to God. That is why the Psalms are infallible praise of the triune God. When we sing the praise of Yahweh, we sing the God-breathed infallible praise of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the Godhead are active in the Psalms. And it's our job to see that. It's our job to grow in seeing that. All three are active and in focus in the Psalms. We sing the Psalms as infallible praise of the triune God. So that is point number one. The second reason the book of Psalms is God's songbook for every age is that it is infallible comfort for every season. It is infallible comfort for every season. As you probably know, the Psalms have all sorts of different types in it. Some are are happy, Psalms of praise. Some are really sad. They're Psalms of lamentation and of, of grief and of sorrow. And there are some extraordinarily dark psalms. I think of Psalm 109, for example, which speaks of Christ's betrayal by Judas Iscariot. And the New Testament writers cite Psalm 109 to talk about Jesus' betrayal being foretold. It's a very, very dark psalm. And there's all sorts of psalms in between. There's creation psalms and wisdom psalms and royal psalms. I call those psalms of assurance because they exalt the King, Christ. They give us assurance and hope. There's psalms of ascents. We did a whole sermon series on those psalms and seeing how it describes the, the Christian life from, the, from our longing for God among pagans to being in the celestial realms of glory with, with God in, in heaven. There's all sorts of psalms. One, one writer said, the psalms speak to every vicissitude of life. How, how's that for a, a word? For every vicissitude, like every experience of our lives is captured in the psalms. And they give us comfort. We can read psalms that give us joy when we feel joyful and that can give us words of grief when we feel sorrow. And they give us words of hope and of thanksgiving. Regarding the structure of the Psalms, which is another way, actually. I, I, so in terms of giving infallible comfort for every season, we get that by different types of Psalms. But we also see it by the structure, the flow of the Psalms themselves from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150 and in the structure of the books also. Many commentators argue that the Psalms is put in five parts or five books. Maybe you've noticed that when you've read the, read the Psalms, it's in five books to mirror the five books of Moses. In other words, we have the perfect law of God in the five books of Moses and we have the perfect worship of God in the five books of of the Psalter. So some commentators have argued for that. There is a lot of there's a lot of different views on 
Is there a structure? Is there not a structure to the Psalms? I wholeheartedly believe there is a structure, and we don't have time to look at it in depth. I'll just give you an overview today. But if you'd like to read deeply on the structure of the Psalms and to know uh, the meaning and theology of the, of the Psalms better, I would highly recommend a book called The Flow of the Psalms, written by uh, a man named O. Palmer Robertson. So O. Period Palmer Robertson, The Flow of the Psalms. And I mention him in the worship folder in the, the overview of the Psalter on page 7 as well. I would highly commend that book. It is written both for pastors and lay, lay people. So it's a, a very accessible book on the Psalms, and you will be very enriched by reading it. But O. Palmer Robertson argues, to me persuasively, of a, of a theological flow to the Psalms. And if you look at page 7 of your worship folder, you will see in the flow of the Psalms that there, there is a progression that I believe is given for our comfort. If you look there at the brief literary outline below, book one, Robertson argues, is about confrontation. Okay, and what he means by that with confrontation is we read books or Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 which are an introduction to the Psalms. Psalm 1 highlights the Word of God and the blessing that comes from obeying the Word of God. Psalm 2 highlights God's anointed King, His Messiah. Psalm 2, which is about Christ, as we know, as I've already said and what the New Testament teaches us. But we have Psalm 1 about the blessed life and then Psalm 2 about the triumph of the King. But then after that, It's catastrophe. It's catastrophe. It's God's people confronting evil, external evils and internal evils. And so they're dealing with it. Well, this is how it should be, but this is how it is right now. That's what book one is predominantly about, this dealing with how it, the ideal, how it should be, but how it actually is. The majority of, of book one is actually filled with psalms of lament, of, of grief, of lamentation. But it doesn't end there. We, but it doesn't get better right away. So we get to book two, which Robertson argues is about communication. It's, it's interacting with God and with others about the evil and the problems that are going on. Book three is the low point of the Psalms, which he, does, he terms as devastation. Some of the darkest Psalms in the Psalter are in Book 3. And it becomes the, the nadir, the low point of the experience of God's people. But then Book 4 begins with the Psalm of Moses, Psalm 90. Teach me to number my days that I might get a heart of wisdom. And it's coming out of that confrontation and that devastation that we have these wisdom psalms that emerge in book four, starting with Psalm 90, teach me to number my days that I might get a heart of wisdom. And then we have a series of uh, psalms of praise that go forth after that, reorientating our focus on God, growing in him and in our faith in him. And then book five is about consummation leading to the final 
hope that we have. And there's, that's where we have the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, we have the, what are called the Hallel Psalms, Psalms of Praise that were sung during Passover, probably the Psalms that Christ sang with his disciples in the upper room. And then Book 5 ends with five Psalms of Praise, which is called the Great Hallel, the Great Praise. So it be, the whole book of Psalms begins with the ideal and it ends with praise and consummation. But all the, way, all the way going through it, you have a lot of dark moments and then you have a lot of learning opportunities. And the reason I argue that knowing the structure of the Psalms gives us comfort for every season is it, it mirrors our lives too. It not only mirrors the flow of salvation history where we're waiting for the light to shine out of darkness when Christ came, and now we're waiting for him to come and consummate all of these promises once and for all. But it also mirrors our lives. <clears throat> we have times when we're joyful. We have times when we're rebellious and we rebel against God. And we neglect God and God chastises us. And we have words for that. We have moments in our lives that feel like devastation. But also in that, we grow in Christ. We are sanctified by Christ in that. And we mature and we are taught to number our days. And we are given wisdom. And we are also given that hope that the best is yet to come, my friends. The best is yet to come. And all of that we can, gives us comfort as we grow in our knowledge of the structure of the Psalter. And as we grow in our knowledge of the kinds of psalms that we are singing. So on a practical point then, if you're feeling sorrow, pray those psalms of lament back to God. Root your sorrows in the sorrows of the psalmist. Learn how you can both grieve rightly as well as praise God and hope in Him rightly, even in the grief. If you're looking for fitting songs of praise, sing the psalms of praise. If you need hope, for the day of battle, sing the royal psalm. Sing Psalm 2. Sing Psalm 110. Commit these psalms to memory as well. I remember a very dark season of my life, a very, very hard season of my life. And I determined to start memorizing Book 4 of the Psalter and singing, memorizing Psalm 90 and 91. And those psalms are still with me today. In hard moments. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to dust. Uh, you know, and, and it goes through, and then to teach me to number your days, that might get a heart of wisdom. Those things will stick in, stick in your heart, and they'll be with you in the moment of trial or in the season of trial, or it'll give you fitting words of praise of hope think of psalm 16 what a wonderful psalm to memorize you have made known to me the pathway of life and your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forever more memorize the psalms sing them sing them personally sing them as a family god has given them to us he's god has kindly given us the psalms to be sung and prayed, that we would experience his comfort in every season of life.
So that is the second reason why the book of Psalms is God's songbook for every age. So, so far I've argued, one, it's because it's infallible praise of the triune God, and secondly, because it's infallible comfort for every season. And now thirdly, I'm going to argue that the book of Psalms is God's songbook for every age because it is infallible power for the Christian life. One of the reasons that it is power is because when you sing the Psalms, you're not worrying about, is this just some dude or some lady's fanciful thinking about God? You're reading God's guarantee written to you in Scripture. And that is power. That is power. And as I've already said, if you memorize and you sing these words, that is power. You know, in the early church, it was God's people bearing witness to Christ, singing the Psalms, even while they were being burned at the stake and fed to lions, that the Roman Empire was overturned. That's power that God has ordained for us by singing his words back to him. But another way that is power is how Paul describes it in Colossians 3. So please turn your Bible to Colossians 3. And we're going to take a little bit of time to look at that in this final point. Colossians 3. Paul writes, and we're going to look at verse 16 in the context of what it means to put on the new self. That is, what it means to put on Christ. So he, I love the phrase. It's, it's more clear in the Greek, but put to death the old man. Kill off the old man and put on the new, put on Christ. And one of the principal ways we do that personally and corporately is by singing the Psalms together. So Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And a few things need to be said here with what Paul is communicating in this verse. One, when we sing the psalms, the gospel is dwelling richly in us. So the, the way Paul says the word of Christ dwells richly in us is by singing, which is remarkable. You know, we, we teach kids to memorize stuff with songs because it's easier. But it's, it's true for all of us that there's something about singing that roots ideas into, the mem- into our very members. Into our, it like cements it in our hearts in a way that just kind of rationally thinking doesn't do. There's something about song that connects our emotions with our brains. Actually, one of the devil's like chief victories, I'd say, in our day, is severing the heart from the brain in oftentimes what is being sung. And, and we, just, we just want to have this kind of ethereal feel. It does not get, too, not get too theological. Theology divides. We just need to feel, right? But that's not biblical Christianity. That's not biblical. We're commanded to be transformed and renewed in our minds. And when we sing 
the word of Christ dwells richly because it connects our hearts and minds together. And the word, as Paul says, dwells richly, lavishly. We are like, we're like bathing in Christ in a lavish way when we sing the Psalms. But also as he exhorts the church in verse 16, we also do that corporately. That actually your job when you come here to church is not just to get like your spiritual download and then go home, right? And that's why we need to gather together and not just be online. I praise the Lord for our ability to live stream because some people physically cannot be here, for example. Uh, And I pray that one day there'd be churches in every place so that everyone could be local, right? But we're actually called to teach and admonish one another. So your job when you come on Sunday is to teach and admonish your brothers and sisters. You know, look around you. This is your ministry too. Not just the guy standing up front. When we come, we are called to teach and admonish one another. And in doing that, the word of Christ dwells richly. So I, I would be a dream of mine if we went on a hike somewhere and we didn't have our psalters with us, we could just break out in song. That we would, we would have the word internalized, that we could teach and admonish each other, even if we didn't have the word of God. Maybe there's a day where the word will be taken from us, as it is, for example, in China where Christians literally like have, there's, they have one Bible, they tear off a page and they memorize that. So each person can communicate the word. <clears throat> but it's in singing the Psalms that the gospel, the word of Christ, dwells richly in us. And more basically, look at how Paul describes the Psalms as the word of Christ. There's not a more powerful like testimony to the relevance of the Psalms today than what Paul says. It's the word of Christ. So we teach and we admonish one another in all wisdom. All wisdom. So there's no other wisdom needed than what we've been given in the Psalms. All wisdom is there. And we know that we're giving good, wise words when we sing God's word back to one another. Okay? And all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I want to say one thing on the interpretation of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the Hebrew book, we, we refer to the book of psalms as psalms. Uh, but the Hebrew book was called Tehillim, or praises. Okay, so they didn't, when they said turn, they didn't say turn to psalms. They tur- said turn to Sefer Tehillim, the book of praises. And psalms are one of the genres in the Tehillim. Hymns are also a genre in the Tehillim. And odes, the songs, as it's translated in English, songs, is also one of the main types of Tehillim. So what Paul is referring to, this is controversial in our day because the church has gotten so far away from singing psalms. But historically, it's been understood that psalms, hymnos, and udes, the the spiritual odes or songs, is a reference to the main types of psalms in the Sefer Telelim, in the book of psalms. So that 
Paul is exhorting when he says he's not talking about as I was raised that well you have the biblical psalms and then you have hymns and then you then you have like contemporary music which is described as spiritual songs that's how it was described to me but that's not how it is Paul is referring to the three main genres so if I, I know you, most of you probably don't know Greek but if you looked at the Greek Old Testament, the one that the early church used, and you read the superscriptions to the Psalms, they typically are described either as a psalm or a hymn or an ode, or sometimes a combination of, of those two. Uh, and so Paul is saying that the gospel will dwell richly in us, and we will be able to teach each other with all wisdom, not just some wisdom, not just a few helpful things, but with all wisdom by singing the biblical psalms with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that's what I mean when I say that the psalms are infallible power for the Christian life. The psalms teach us how to feel. They teach us how to think. They teach us how to hope. You know, they, they teach us how to feel rightly about evil, how to think rightly about it, how to think rightly about God and his kingdom, and his people, his Messiah. They teach us how to hope. When we, when we are in the Psalms, it's training us. It's like, it's like we have a trainer who's working with us to get in shape. That Jesus is speaking to us through the Psalms. The Spirit has inspired these Psalms to train us in the way of Jesus and in the way of Christ that the gospel would dwell richly in us. So friends, I commend the Psalms to you as God's songbook. The book of praises for every age because it's infallible praise of the triune God, because it gives us infallible comfort for every season, every vicissitude of life. And because it's infallible power for the Christian life, it is a chief way that the gospel dwells in us, that we're conformed and matured after the image of Jesus. The Psalms have been the means of hope for God's people, as I've said already, in good times and bad, in the kitchen and on the battlefield at the martyr's stake. God has comforted his people and he will comfort us as we let the word of Christ dwell richly in us, learning to teach and memorize and sing God's song book together. I want to close by reading the summary that I've given for you in the, the worship folder on page 7 of the Psalter. And it's something you can study or think about. Look at those references in your own time. The book of Psalms is God's songbook called Sefer Tehillim, Book of Praises in the Hebrew Bible. Psalms is a collection of 150 psalms, hymns, and odes, often collectively called psalms, divided into five books comprising the praise of Yahweh. That is, that's what hallelujah means, praise, and Yah means Yahweh. Many authors contribute the book of Psalms, uh, contribute to the book of Psalms with the principal writer is David. As God's anointed king, David was the model worship leader of God's people, but he is also the type and foreshadow of Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers argue 
that Jesus is the ultimate worship leader and the focal point and climax of the Psalms. For example, the writer of Hebrews shows that Psalms addressed to the Lord, Yahweh, or God's anointed, the Messiah, are speaking to Jesus. Likewise, the writer shows that Jesus speaks to us through the voice of the psalmist. While the book of Psalms is a collection of God's ordained songwriters, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author, and the Holy Spirit spoke through the psalmist to declare the glories of Christ. Though often neglected and sidelined in churches today, the people of God in all ages have sung the psalms as the words of Christ. Paul himself, pointing to the three principal types of psalms in the Greek Old Testament, urges the church to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by singing them. When we sing the psalms, we sing the gospel. What is most important to note is that the psalms are relevant for every age. As we stand between the comings of Christ, we sing the psalms as promises fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming, but we also sing them acknowledging that their ultimate consummation will come when our Lord returns. When we sing the Psalms, we sing about Christ, the gospel, the church, spiritual warfare, and the kingdom of God. Let's pray.